This is the story of the one. As a maintenance engineer, he hears things differently. To the untrained ear, everything on his shop floor might sound fine, but he can hear gears grinding or a belt slipping. So he steps in to fix the problem at hand before it gets out of hand. And he knows Granger's got the right product he needs to get the job done, which is music to his ears. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Fell in love with a third generation Greek girl. Now I'm just trying to shake it off. Now I'm just trying to shake it off. Found one of her old books the other day. Left it when she went off on her way and said, I don't feel like fighting this. I wanna be invited in. Like the time she came back from Europe, the night she mustered up the courage. Finally talk about her flame with a girl we both knew back in the Hello, listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Shake It Off by Drew Joseph. This folk singer-songwriter from Toledo, Ohio, is our featured Ohio musical artist tonight. So hang out with us to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you all about him and let you listen to that entire song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akron Beacon Journal. Hi, everybody. Okay, Steve, if I asked you to think about organized crime in Ohio, and I make you limit your answer to just one city, which city would you connect most closely with the mafia? Well, definitely there are more than one. I've heard of them in Cleveland, Canton. And I think we did a mafia-type story in Western Ohio, but I guess I would go with Youngstown? Bingo. Actually, Youngstown was nationally known for its mob activity, particularly because it was horrifically bloody and gruesome. There's a website called the New York Mafia, and even they dedicated a whole section just to Youngstown, saying Chicago and New York City might be better known for gangsters and racketeers, but, and here's the quote, little old Youngstown had played the gangster game as well as anybody and arguably more deadly than many. There was even a time, Steve, when the Saturday Evening Post, do you, do you know that famous national magazine? Yes, yes. So you see they, all the art on it was amazing as well. Oh, yeah. They always had this great, great art. And they did a cover story about Youngstown with the headline, Crime Town, USA. And also, and I don't know if you've heard this, car bombs were so prolific in Youngstown, it was like once or twice a month for years they would have car bombs, that people around the country started calling car bombs the Youngstown tune-up. Anyway, to tell you about the mob in Youngstown, it would take an entire podcast series on its own. So tonight, I'm going to focus mostly on just one very colorful local Italian family. I'm talking about the legendary Naples brothers, Sandy, Billy, Jimmy, and Joey, three of whom met their ends by an assassin's bullet or a car bomb. 
and whose murders are technically still unsolved. I can't wait to tell you about the Naples brothers, but first, let me explain to you the world they grew up in, so that when I introduce them, you'll understand things a little better. And the story of the Youngstown mob actually needs a brief introduction to the Pittsburgh crime family, because Youngstown was never its own mafia. It was a satellite of Pittsburgh. Now, the mob in Pittsburgh really rose to power in the early 1920s when Prohibition was passed. When you make something illegal, you have just created an opportunity for organized crime to come in and take over. And of course, making alcohol illegal created a need for bootlegging. So the mafia in Pittsburgh soared into power by making, selling, and transporting what everyone wanted and couldn't legally get alcohol. It was a violent era. Different factions of the mafia were fighting for control over the Italian neighborhoods of Pittsburgh and its suburbs. And from 1926 to 1933, there were more than 200 murders in Allegheny County. And the dead included three successive reigning mafia bosses, the kingpins themselves, as the leaders duked it out for control. Eventually, John Sebastian LaRocca took control of the Pittsburgh crime family and stayed on top for nearly 30 years, using bribery to control politicians, police officers, and other officials in the Pittsburgh area. When Prohibition ended and the return of legal alcohol made bootlegging obsolete, the mafia adapted their empire to take control of other illegal enterprises, including gambling, prostitution, and eventually narcotics. Now, during all of this period, there was an underworld in Youngstown, with gambling a multi-million dollar industry. Some of the racketeers there had ties to the mob in Pittsburgh, some to the family in Cleveland, some to Buffalo. Mahoning Valley, it was about an hour's drive from all the established families, so it was in the middle of this tug of war. The tug eventually narrowed down to Pittsburgh and Cleveland, and it really came to head in the 60s and 70s as the mafia in both of those cities launched bloody campaigns, fighting over the Mahoning County, which was so rich in the vices of bookmaking, numbers, crap games, slot machines, prostitution, and drugs. Youngstown was also a prize because it was arguably the most corrupt city in America. Everyone was on the payroll of one mafia family or the other. The police chief, the county sheriff, the mayor, all the significant politicians. And I told you about the car bombs. In a 10-year period into the early 1960s, they had counted more than 75 of them. In the end, Pittsburgh won this protracted war. 
in part because in Cleveland, the government was starting to have success prosecuting that city's mob leaders and weakening organized crime there. So that's the context. Now, let's go back and integrate the story of our Youngstown brothers, the Naples. This begins back in the 1940s, when Youngstown was still an open city and fair game for all the mob families. The Naples brothers were independent gangsters. They were the sons of Italian immigrants Giuseppe and Lucia di Napoli, who came to America and settled in Youngstown's Little Italy neighborhood, also known as Briar Hill. Giuseppe and Lucia had seven children, three girls and four boys. Sandy was the oldest. He was born Santino di Napoli in 1908 in Italy, and he came to the U.S. with his parents as a little boy. As an aspiring criminal, Sandy had a very rough start. At the age of 17, he went to prison for felonious assault and robbery and stayed there for a decade. He got out in 1944. Soon after his release, he hooked up with a partner, Vince De Niro, and together they rose through the underworld with a vending machine racket that included jukeboxes, cigarettes, and pinball machines. They grew their empire by robbing other vending machine owners of their spots. They'd just walk into a store or a bar or a restaurant. They would rustle the existing vending machine out of its place and toss it onto the sidewalk then dare the old vending machine provider to argue about it. But as is the case with many partnerships, the business marriage of Sandy Naples and Vince De Niro soured. De Niro accused Sandy of usurping orders he gave to the underlings. And he also didn't like the power Sandy was acquiring by bringing his younger brothers into the business. Maybe even more damaging, De Niro accused Sandy of using drugs himself, heroin, and there came a painful split. De Niro started moving in the orbit of the Cleveland mob, while Sandy Naples was loyal to the boys in Pittsburgh. And so Sandy Naples and Vince De Niro, once the best of friends, now the worst of enemies, chose different sides. In his heyday, Sandy Naples was arguably Youngstown's most notorious gambling boss. He and his brothers ran the United Music Company, that was the vending company I told you about, but also the Center Sandwich Shop on Wilson Avenue. The sandwiches were the least profitable part of the sandwich shop. It was a front for their numbers ring, which was an underground lottery game. They not only catered to Italian neighborhoods, They had a complete lock on all of Youngstown's black neighborhoods. Apparently, Sandy became a sort of benefactor to Youngstown's black neighborhoods, and they kind of adored him. In 1949, Sandy almost died in a gangland hit. A mob assassin strolled into a center sandwich shop and shot him several times, but he survived. 
There's a story that circulated about his recovery in the hospital. It was said that his hospital room was often filled with black visitors who had come to wish Sandy a speedy recovery. This seemed so odd to medical staff that they questioned the visitors and were told that Sandy had done more for their black neighborhoods than the local government. Over the years, Sandy was a suspect in several local murders including the killing of a man named Jerry Pascarelli in April of 1945. Pascarelli was said to be a scam artist and a con man who vanished, and his blood-stained car was later found abandoned in Cuyahoga Falls. His body was never found. Sandy was never arrested, but it didn't stop the whispers. And sometimes when Sandy showed up in the headlines, he was on the receiving end. I told you about him getting shot. Well, in 1957, he was building a sprawling ranch home on Carlotta Street. That's on the city's north side. When his mob enemies... ...dynamited the unfinished house. And in 1958, Sandy got to see the inside of a jail again. He was charged and found guilty of running that numbers racket, but he was only given a six-month stint at the local Mahoning County Jail. And, a testament to his influence with the police, he routinely was let out of prison every weekend to go hang out with his longtime girlfriend. We know this because one weekend, he was caught by a newspaper photographer who saw him around town. His escapades ended up in the broadsheets the next day when the photographer's picture ran on the front page of the Vindicator. The Ohio governor sent state troopers in to investigate these lax incarceration practices that were allowing mobsters to treat the jail like a motel. The sheriff said, eh, he was let out by his cousin, a deputy named Frank Naples. Frank said, eh, I just took him home to get some clean underwear. And when they interviewed Sandy, he said, eh, he was just taking me to see my doctor. State investigators knew everyone was lying, but since everyone in town was on the mafia payroll and they weren't getting anywhere, they eventually left town. But all good things come to an end. And for Sandy Naples, his luck ran out on March 11, 1960. The 52-year-old went to visit his 28-year-old girlfriend, Marianne Vrancic, who lived on Caledonia Street. It wasn't hard to know he'd be there. He always stopped by after he closed the restaurant for the day. As he stepped onto the porch and reached the front door, two gunmen were waiting in the shadows. They brandished sawed-off shotguns and fired at him. When Marianne ran onto the porch to help him, they shot and killed her. Sandy had a 38 caliber revolver with him, and he managed to empty it. But it didn't appear he had anything. When police arrived, Sandy was still alive, but just barely. They tried to get him to say who had shot him, but he couldn't or wouldn't say. Sandy died with a roll of $5,000 in cash in his pockets 
and that bag of sandwiches he'd brought home for dinner. The shotguns used to kill him were found later, abandoned in a sewer. One of the shotguns was traced to the Canton Police Department. Later that week, Sandy was accompanied to his grave by a procession of 92 cars that solemnly made their way down Belmont Avenue. After Sandy's death, his 35-year-old kid brother Billy took over leadership of the Naples family enterprise, and Billy, no doubt, was bent on justice for Sandy. The theory was that Sandy's killers were hired by his old partner, Vince De Niro, and De Niro's buddy in the Cleveland mob, a man named Charles Cavallero, or Cadillac Charlie. Police questioned Vince De Niro, but released him for lack of evidence. De Niro was not getting off that easy. On July 17, 1961, a powerful blast rocked Market Street in downtown Youngstown when a massive dynamite bomb vaporized Vince De Niro's car with him in it. Windows shattered a block away. In typical mob tit-for-tat fashion, De Niro's murder had to be answered. On July 1, 1962, a year after De Niro was blasted to smithereens, Billy went to start his car parked in a North End garage and learned too late it had been wired. He was blown through the window of the car. So, of course, it was time for the Naples side of this feud to respond. And four months after Billy was killed, Cadillac Charlie hopped into his brand new Cadillac in the driveway of his Youngstown home. It was Thanksgiving Day, and he had his two young boys with him, Charlie Jr. and Tommy. The car exploded. Cavallero and 11-year-old Tommy were killed. News reports said Cadillac Charlie had been cut in half by the explosion, and part of him ended up in the neighbor's yard. Remarkably, the other son, Charlie Jr., survived, though he suffered the ramifications of his awful physical injuries the rest of his life. Because there were children involved, the attack was so shocking to wise guys across the country, it was said the Mafia families agreed to adopt a rule against any more car bombs. Youngstown didn't care. They continued to use them for years. After Sandy and then Billy were killed, there were two Nables brothers left. One of them, Jimmy, had enough. He stayed somewhat active in the family business, but far, far in the shadows. He had no interest in the type of leadership roles that had put both of his brothers in the crosshairs. But the youngest Naples brother, little Joey, was far from dissuaded. He would not only surpass his brother Sandy's reputation as a Youngstown racket boss, but would rise far up into mob leadership in a way none of them had. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let me tell you how that happened. In 1984, that long-reigning Pittsburgh godfather, LaRocca, died, and a new guy was in place, Michael Genovese. There were a couple of things happening, or not happening, in the 1980s. First, the FBI was starting to have success dismantling the Pittsburgh Mafia. Lots of folks going to jail, some even turning state's evidence to nail their own. And while the Pittsburgh leadership shrunk, the new boss, Michael Genovese, was very slow to replace them. The mob was dying through attrition. In the first decade of his two-decade reign, Michael Genovese only named five new made men. You've probably heard that term in the movies. Basically, a made man means you are a full member of the family, that you have been placed on a path that will allow you to move up through the hierarchy, you get an income from the group's ill-gotten revenue, and, in theory anyway, you are promised protection from harm. Among the five new made men by Michael Genovese was little Joey Naples, the first and only Naples brother to make it to the big show. He was promoted in a ceremony in 1987. And he rose just in time because within the year, there was a job opening. In 1988, the boss in charge of Youngstown, Vincenzo Prato, died. Little Joey and another new made man, Lenny Strollo, who had also been raised in Youngstown, were named co-bosses of the Pittsburgh Mafia's efforts in the Mahoning Valley. Then something happened that spelled the end of Joey, though he certainly wouldn't have known it at the time. In 1990, Lenny Strollo, the guy serving co-boss duties with Little Joey, was convicted on gambling charges and sentenced to 14 months in prison. Lenny Strollo ran the All-American Club, reportedly one of the largest illegal casinos in the country and, according to the FBI, generating some $20 million a year for the Pittsburgh family. Later, according to confidential informants to the feds, Lenny Strollo was really worried that his absence while in jail would bolster Joey's control of their territory, maybe allow Joey to take it all over and muscle him out. The evening of August 19, 1991, little Joey stopped by to look over a new house he was building on Lynn Road in Beaver Township. An assassin was waiting in a cornfield with a high-powered rifle. Little Joey was found shortly after 8 p.m., lying next to his late-model Ford Mustang in the driveway of what was to be his future home, shot dead. Just as with the murders of his brothers, Sandy and Billy, 
This one surely will never be solved. All that remained was speculation and theories, the most compelling being that Lenny Strollo engineered it to protect his role at the top of the Youngstown mob satellite. By the time Joey Naples was killed, the Youngstown mob already had one foot on the slippery slope to extinction. Police and political corruption was being tackled and significantly hampered. A new police chief refused to be bought. It was becoming impossible for the mob to collect their normal street tax, gambling revenue, and loan shark debts. Lenny Strollo wasn't going down without a fight. He ordered a series of hits. On June 3, 1996, Joey Naples' former right-hand man, Ernie Biondello, was driving down a side street when a couple of cars surrounded him and blocked him in. The men in those cars opened fire, shooting Biondello multiple times as he sat trapped in the front seat of his Jeep. Also in 1996, Lenny Strollo put out a contract on the life of the surprise winner of the Mahoney County Prosecutor's election. Paul Gaines was a no-nonsense candidate who refused to be bought, and he had yet to take his office when a mob gunman entered his home in Boardman on Christmas Eve and shot him twice. The would-be assassin aimed his third shot at Gaines' head, but the gun jammed and he fled. Gaines survived that attempted hit, and get this, he is still the county prosecutor 25 years later. A year after the attempted hit on Gaines, Lenny Strollo was behind bars. In 1997, he was dicted on a number of charges from aggravated murder to racketeering, and he was arrested at his home in Canfield. He was placed into protective custody, and he was talked into a plea agreement that turned him into a government witness. He was sentenced to 12 years in prison, only served a small portion of it. He was allowed to keep all of his money and his house. In exchange, he spent the next few years testifying at several organized crime and government corruption trials. Today, Lenny Strollo is still alive. He's about 90 years old and reportedly living in the open in the Mahoning Valley as the last official wise guy from the Youngstown mob. So, Steve, I know you love mobster stories. What do you think of this one? Well, I've never heard of any of that history. I didn't know that it was it was kind of a satellite of Pittsburgh, the, the Youngstown crime fa- family and the, you know, the crime bosses there. So all of that was very surprising. But you didn't mention somebody that I thought I would hear, and that would be the name James Traficant. Does he figure into this story? Oh, yeah. Yeah. We know, for instance, that our last Naples brother, little Joey, gave him bribes in 1980 to get him on the mob's payroll back when Trafficant was running for county sheriff. As a matter of fact, paid him $65,000 to make sure Sheriff Trafficant wouldn't interfere with his Youngstown operations. 
I suppose for our listeners, we should explain who Trafficant was. I only know him because he would be on the Mike Trevisano show on 1100 AM. He was a politician. And sometimes he would actually have his own, you know, little show on 1100 sometimes. Oh, my gosh. He was so popular. Talk about another colorful Youngstown story, although there's no mystery here. Let me try to give you Trafficant in a nutshell. He was born into a working-class Catholic family. He was a football standout and played quarterback for the University of Pittsburgh. He was actually drafted by the Pittsburgh Steelers in 1963, but never ended up playing. He got a master's. He started teaching and lecturing on drug and alcohol abuse. He taught at police academies. He headed up the Mahoning County Drug Program. And when he went to run for Mahoning County Sheriff in 1980, that's when he accepted bribes from both both the Cleveland and Pittsburgh mobs in exchange for agreeing to ignore their gambling and drug businesses in Youngstown. Now, in 1983, he was charged with racketeering for accepting those bribes. He represented himself and he was acquitted. He's the only person to ever win a federal RICO case while representing himself. Wow. Now, the good folks of Mahoning County, who really loved their bad boys back then, proceeded to send him to Congress. He was a Democrat, and he was reelected eight times without serious opposition. The feds finally caught up with him in 2001. He was convicted of 10 felony counts, including taking bribes, filing false tax returns, racketeering, and forcing his congressional staff to perform chores at his Ohio farm. He was expelled from the House, served a seven-year prison sentence, and was released in 2009. Five years later, he was dead. He flipped his tractor over while riding it on his farm and trapping him beneath it, and he died of those injuries. I did not know that's how he died. I just assumed he just passed away. Well, you know, he had to have a colorful end. With a life like that, you couldn't just have him dying in his sleep, I guess. Exactly, exactly. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. Drew Joseph is a folk singer-songwriter from Toledo, Ohio. I've seen some references that also call his sound alt-country. We have featured him on our podcast a couple of times, and we're proud to do it again. This past year, Drew did a lot of Facebook streaming of his music since the pandemic had closed down all the performance venues. And those performances are still up on his Facebook page. So check out his page. Uh, You can stream him on Spotify and you can buy his music at drewjosephmusic.bandcamp.com. Well, let's have another listen to Shake It Off by Drew Joseph. And we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries. Of me. Took 
some classes, got my degree Fell in love with a third generation Greek girl Now I'm just trying to shake it off Now I'm just trying to shake it off Found one of her old books the other day Left it when she went off on her way and said I don't feel like fighting this I wanna be invited in Like the time she came back from Europe The night she mustered up the courage Finally talked about her flame With a girl we both knew back in the States She was just trying to shake it off story gets shared by a friend on social media or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.